Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with co-hostess Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by the Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. And it is supported by our friends at Worthy Brewing, putting education first, utilizing green technologies, and experimenting daily to brew the best damn beer in the Pacific Northwest while treading as lightly on the earth as possible, living out their mantra, earth first, beer second. I swear they're going to trademark my, my intro to that. But uh, our guest today is Ryan Houston. He is the director of the Oregon Natural Desert Association, executive director, I should say, and uh, joined them in 2018. Before that, he worked for nearly two decades leading the Upper Deschutes Watershed Council. He studied environmental science at the University of California at Berkeley and has a master's in ecology from the University of Arizona. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. I, I'm going to add to that. You're you're also the uh, easiest going environmentalist in Central Oregon. I think that's a that's a catchphrase that's gonna gonna hang. That's uh, funny. I, I haven't. <laughs> I've been called a lot of things in my career, but that's True. not one of them. So, <laughs> must be just your interactions in uh, with journalists. So, um, hey, tell us about your life growing up in California and um, early interest in, in desert ecology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I grew. Up- yeah, I grew up down in San Diego, and, and you wouldn't think of uh, someone from San Diego falling in love with the desert. Um, but, you know, when a lot of my friends would go west to the beach, I'd turn and go east to the desert. And uh, out east of San Diego is the Anzabrego Desert State Park, which is a state park of like 600,000 acres, really incredible landscape. And so uh, middle school, high school, I uh, just kind of fell in love with that landscape. And that's when my science brain was turning on in school, and I got really interested in science and started um, enjoying exploring out there. And so that's really when I started paying attention to environmental issues, got really interested in biology, ecology, um, and just fell in love with those open desert landscapes where you can see as far as you can and get that nice, bright desert sky at night and that sort of thing. It's cool. I mean, that's one of the reasons that Central Oregon's so appealing. You can jet over to the coast, but for the most part, most of us here if you're here for that reason, you head east and yep. it's gorgeous. Yep. So you've, de- you've developed a strong reputation as a collaborator, coalition builder, even though your background is in sciences and certainly as you moved, you've moved up to executive director. What do you see as your role um, as you've moved into these higher positions between advocacy and, and working within the community? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, what I'm most interested in are really the outcomes and whether, and when I say outcomes, I mean, you know, outcomes for whatever environmental issue we're working on used to be rivers. I was with the Watershed Council now looking at public lands in Eastern Oregon. And to me, what that's what really motivates me is seeing positive change um, in, in those issues and on those landscapes. And the bottom line is to get that change, we have to work with people. Um, and those are people in our organization, like a big organization like Onda with 16 staff. Um, we also have to work with the community. And so when I think about sort of that, that spectrum that includes advocacy and collaboration and different tools, I see those as all different tools and all different methodologies for trying to achieve outcomes. And, and frankly, I find them all interesting. Um, and I, I, I've seen how each type of tool can be effective in its own right. I can see the place that advocacy plays. I can see where collaboration plays. I can see when litigation is necessary to sort of move the dial. And so I'm sort of a, 
I'm driven by the outcomes, but I'm a student of the tools. And so that's where a place like Onda is different than my old role because we use a different set of tools. And so it's really interesting to see how those can apply in a community. So one one of Onda's primary goals is acting as an environmental watchdog over federal lands. Um, And Oregon has millions of acres under the care of the Bureau of Land Management. So can you give us a little historical context of that agency and and why it was created? Yeah, so, you know, the BLM is is a a massive agency um, in the sense that they they manage one out of every 10 acres in the United States. And so roughly a 10th of the land base is, is under their management. And so that's somewhere in the order of 245, 250 million acres, um, mostly in the 11 Western states and Alaska. Um, And so the BLM came to be in the 40s with the merger of two other entities. Um, But really the the BLM, I I see it as being born in the mid 70s with the passage of, and this is gonna get wonky, uh, an act called FLIPMA, which is the Federal Land Policy and Management Act. You can get wonky, Ryan. I mean, no, I do. listeners I, I are wonky. <laughs> These are wonk lovers, I think. That's I, good. We're finding that. So yeah, I'll, I'll be wonky whether I'm supposed to or not. But but Flipma um, in 1976 basically set the trajectory and the mandate for BLM. I mean, it's sort of the governing piece of legislation for how BLM manages those 240 plus million acres. And so. Um, you know, really what that, and so when you talk about things like multiple use management, you talk about how you balance extractive uses versus conservation uses, those are all, um, those are all um, managed under FLIPMA. And FLIPMA tells the BLM how to do that. And a big part of how they do that is through inclusive planning with the public, because these are public lands, they belong to every one of us. If there's 350 million people in the US, that means you own one 350 millionth of those public lands yourself, you know? And so the BLM basically under FLIPMA has very clear structures and guidance for how to engage the public in making the often very difficult trade-off decisions about how to manage these resources for multiple uses. And multiple uses includes conservation. So use doesn't just mean extraction, it means conservation as well. And so in that process, groups like ONDA advocate for the conservation side. Um, and we also make sure that the public knows that there's that venue where if they care about those places, they need to show up and they need to speak up. And of course, industry does that as well and Cattlemen's Association and you name it. So who primarily benefits from BLM land? And do the people that use it for extractive purposes like ranchers and mining, do they pay reasonable fees in your mind? Yeah, you know, the word reasonable is what's the, the tricky one there. Um, and, and in my mind, they're not reasonable. Um, and Or maybe the word I would use is I would say they're not sufficient. Um, and just as, a, as an example, um, the, the fees that someone would pay for grazing on public lands are, you know, depending on the year, they're somewhere on the order of one-tenth what they would pay to do grazing on equivalent private land. And so if you think of the private land as the market rate, it means that the federal land is roughly one-tenth of that cost. And so there's a subsidy going on there. And so, you know, that's pretty well known and pretty well understood. And just like, just like anything, there's a lot, of, a lot of political debate about those subsidies and that sort of thing. And, and what, what we advocate for is a recognition of, frankly, something the BLM recognizes too, which is 
even though the BLM has this multiple use mandate, that doesn't mean every use on every acre. What it means is the right use in the right place. And so there are some really incredible places that have cultural values, ecological values, wildlife values, and those would be places where, you know, good multiple use management would recognize those values and protect them. Similarly, there are other places where um, more extractive uses are, are appropriate. And so, you know, I'm sitting here with my cell phone and I've got lithium in my battery and lithium probably comes from a lithium mine that may be on public land somewhere in the Western United States. And so we're all sort of connected to those issues. But the question is, how do we be smart about how we um, plan and make those decisions about the right uses in the right places? And that's really what the debate ends up be becoming focused on is what's the right use in the right place. You know, I, I don't sit where you do in the hub of, of these environmental issues, but it, it does seem like we're just coming out of a, a four-year period where it's become kind of a salad regarding what the role of the BLM versus the Forest Service and these other agencies are. And it's become very business-friendly, especially as we're going to the tail end of this presidency. It seems like uh, there's a real rush to try to help extractive en entities get as much as they can uh, before the term. Are you seeing that? And what do you think it means for a transition to a, a new presidency? And what is that going to mean in terms of, can you roll it back? I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but um, I yeah. the concerns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think you're right. We've seen a lot of, um, I mean, we've seen a lot of crazy things happen with the Trump administration. And just, you know, one good example is the director of the BLM, uh, William Henley, um, he didn't go through the right appointment process. And so for 400 and I think it was like 424 days or something, he basically was operating illegally as director of the BLM and the courts have recognized that. And so the courts have essentially said, well, any of the decisions that he signed off on during those 424 days, whatever the number wow. was, those are now no longer legitimate. And so there was a big case in Montana. It may affect some situations here in Oregon. And so there are things like that where, Trump administration tried to cut some corners. They tried to put somebody in a decision-making role who really wasn't appropriate for that role. Um, he had been a fairly vocal anti-public lands advocate before, um, and, and they've been called on it. And so some of those can be reversed. Um, others will take a long time to reverse. Um, what we're hopeful for is that, the, that science will come back into planning. Um, I mean, it's kind of kind of crazy that we're saying that, but you know, we're going for the basics here, right? Well, I did hear, I did notice that Biden in his acceptance speech, I think he used the term science like four or five times. I don't know whether that was a yeah. commitment to policy or just a way to jab the Trump administration. <laughs> yeah, I think he was up on the jumbotron next to his, right. you know, and one of those speeches. I mean, the word science. I was encouraged. I was encouraged. Yeah. yeah. And so that's really, I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the things we talk about you know, all the time here at ONDA is we wanna, we wanna have science-based decision-making. We want it based on best available science. I mean, those things are really basic, but of course, you know, science gets political really fast, um, like, you know, climate change. And so we look at the Biden administration and, and our, our hopes are that um, in some of these planning processes that are underway right now that cover massive, massive swaths of the Oregon desert, like up to 8 million acres. Some of those planning processes, uh, we hope that the, uh, the science will come back into the room. Um, good public engagement will happen again, and there will actually be a, a legitimate 
robust planning process. That is what FLIPMA back in 1976 said should happen. Um, so we're really kind of hoping that it's back to something that's reasonable, normal, and rational. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that were very happy with just a guy who could just sign a paper and shoot it, shoot it off and, and call it policy and legislation. It seemed like, I mean, the number of emails and notifications about this kind of stuff that were coming rapid fire, you could barely mm -hmm. keep track of it over the last couple of years. It got yeah. pretty intense, pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of groups like ours, and I mean, and there are, you know, dozens of other similar sectors to our public land sector, you know, we're all playing defense on that and trying to figure out how we, how we manage it. So tell us a little bit about those management plans. It's 8 million acres, I think, in, in Eastern Oregon. And, you know, how are you getting involved in the BLM's process? And I mean, I know there's some issues about grazing, ATV use, um, and tell us why the public should care about it and be engaged. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I recognize, I mean, I sort of laugh that, you know, if I start a conversation with FLIPMA and RMP, <laughs> you know, people are going to ask me to leave the cocktail party, you know? And so, um, so an RMP is a resource management plan. And essentially what the BLM does is, is roughly every 20 years or so, um, they develop a new resource management plan under the guidance of FLIPMA that is intended to basically make those decisions about how the land is going to be managed under that multiple use mandate. And so that means where are the places that you're going to protect for what values, cultural, scenic, environmental, wildlife, whatever, what are the areas where you're going to allow off-road vehicle use or grazing or mining or you name it. And so, so it's, they're, they're extremely important because they set the framework for the next 20 years. And if they get delayed, 25 years, they get delayed some more, 30 years. And so these are really almost like generational plans. And so um, they are extremely important. And what we're interested in in those is, um, as you might imagine, making sure that some of the key decisions around recognition of areas that have wilderness quality, and so those are the, the most remote, the most natural, the most pristine places, that those are managed for that. Um, making sure that grazing is well managed and making sure that travel, so off-road vehicles and roads and that sort of thing, is also well managed. Um, and so the BLM is required to take the public input and, and do thorough, rigorous, hard look kind of analysis. Um, and so we, we help make sure that they do that, that they have the opportunity to do that. I um, mean, we help make sure that the public, you know, all the people that have been out in the desert since COVID struck and they're all trying to find a good good place to get away and have some space, all those people know that there's an opportunity to speak up. I've been waiting for that mass migration out of Bend out to the desert as, as the freeze continues and everybody's like locked down. It just is like gravel riding's big, hiking out in the BLM lands or anything to just get, you know, some space, yeah. you know. Yeah, I think the Alvor Desert, you know, the big flat east of yeah. Steens, I think the number I heard is that there were something like 500 camps out there over one of the long weekends, you know, and so people are getting out and, and you know how it is. I mean, nature, I mean, there's, there's plenty of studies and plenty of, uh, you know, artists and, and writers have talked about the power of nature in these, in these trying times. I mean, it's, it's a place people go for rejuvenation and solace and the desert is a wonderful place for that. And so we, you know, we want to make sure people who care about it, know about these wonky things and can step up and participate. 
I've tried to convince my son of that, but he he refutes it and says that the the new release of the PS5 and Spider-Man game is probably Trump's the Alvarez Desert. But we're gonna we're gonna go back and forth on that one. Yeah, yeah. So Ryan, I know you um, I know you guys have a real interest in the Wahi Canyon lands, and that Merkley and Wyden are introducing proposal mm-hmm. to try to try to protect those. Maybe give our listeners a sense of. Why are the Hawaii Canyonlands so interesting and, and why they deserve to be preserved? Yeah, yeah. So the Oahe region is, is one of those areas that, that a lot of people really haven't explored much. It's, it's hard to get to, it's rugged, it's remote. It's the far southeastern corner of Oregon. And, if, um, and so it's, if you look at one of those maps of the United States at night and you see all the lights of all the cities, the Oahe Canyonlands is the dark spot. <laughs> it's the dark spot because it's one of the darkest places left in the lower 48. It's one of the most remote places in the lower 48 when you look at the distribution of roads and that sort of thing. And it's really just an incredible landscape. It's a hot spot for sage grouse, which as you know, are, are um, under a lot of pressure in the, in the Great Basin. Um, it's a hot spot for wildlife. Um, it has some incredible geologic features. It has a rich cultural history. A number of Native American tribes um, treat that area as their ancestral homeland. Um, and it's really one of those places that is just magical and worthy of that national level recognition. Um, and so what Senator Wyden put together is a, is a conversation between conservation groups and local ranchers and other stakeholders to come up with a, sort of a compromise proposal that looks to protect about 1.1 million acres of the Oahe as wilderness, um, and then includes a bunch of other management provisions. And if you look at Oregon, and Oregon has, I think, I think it's like two and a half million acres of wilderness total right now. 1.1 on top of two and a half is a pretty massive increase in the total amount of protected land in Oregon. And so it's, it would be a really significant move to recognize that, that large of a desert landscape for the incredible wilderness values that it has. And is there a lot of um, opposition to allocating the Oahe for wilderness? And what's it current, are there currently extractive uses for it or grazing interests? I mean, what's the pushback? What's the pushback? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is roughly two and a half million acres out there has been identified as meeting meeting the criteria for wilderness, which is like size and remoteness and naturalness and that sort of thing. And so of that two and a half million, only 1.1 would actually be designated. And so so, um, even though that's a a fairly small proportion of that total, the pushback is, is, is a couple. One, you know, wilderness is one of the more restrictive designations on the landscape. And so you're not going to put power lines across the wilderness. You're not going to build new roads, new mining, all that kind of stuff. And so um, for a county like Mollier County, there are folks out there who are looking at that landscape and they're saying, you know, the vast majority of our county is federally managed land. We don't want any restrictions that prevent future opportunity, whatever that opportunity might be. Right. And so it's a, it's a closure of future opportunity from, from some of their perspectives. Um, there's also tremendous amount of grazing. I think 98% of that landscape is grazed. And even though you can graze in wilderness, and a lot of wildernesses are grazed, and this legislation doesn't constrain grazing, 
people look at it and they say, you know, that's one more layer of federal government. Right. And I'm concerned about that and I don't want to deal with it. And so they generally are the, the same kinds of concerns you hear on other kinds of public land protections. It's sort of anti-federal government, anti, you know, concerned about additional controls or constraints. Um, and so, you know, that's always the, the dilemma in these wilderness designations because they're permanent um, and they're, they're significant. And, um, you know, there, there's plenty of economic studies that talk about the value of, of protected public lands to adjacent communities. Um, but, it, you know, it's change and, and people get concerned about the change. How is all of that connected to the occupation at the Malheur a couple of years ago? Yeah, thankfully it's not too connected. <laughs> That's a connection that I think many of us would be glad to not have. Right. Um, you know, the Malheur occupation was driven by the group that was, you know, obviously very deeply anti-federal government and generally questioned even the basic authority of the federal government to manage federal lands. And so their, their opposition was at a much deeper level and a much more sort of foundational level than some of the opposition um, in Malheur County right now. But um, it is important to note that the bill that Senator Wyden's put together is a bill that was put together with a bunch of us around the table. Um, and it includes some elements that really stretch the environmental community and have us nervous. And it includes some elements that stretch the grazing and ranching community and have them nervous. nervous. And so it's not a classic win-lose dynamic, it's, it's much more of a stretching of both sides to try to find some compromise. And Senator Wyden made that pretty clear in his process. He said he wants to give everyone what they need, but he won't give everyone what they want. And so, um, so it's, a, it's an interesting process and it's still unfolding. Well, at a time that you got emotions, even if it isn't tied to the malheur, I mean, yeah. emotions are running so high in communities yeah. around any kind of additional federal allocations that I would be surprised if anything moved forward that didn't give a lot of credence to local input, local ranchers, and probably, exactly. probably appropriate given, you know, the alternative is trenches in, in a wildlife area with, you know, people doing donuts. So Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and, and you'd asked earlier about, you know, Biden administration and so forth. Um, you know, assuming the Senate remains in Republican control and based on the, the, the very premise that Wyden set out here, which is let's, let's find something that most folks can agree on. You know, we don't expect the dynamics to change significantly with the Biden administration because it's, it's intended to be a bipartisan effort regardless. Um, and so very, 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 very slim chances that anything will happen in what's left of this Congress over the next few weeks. And so most likely what we're hoping for is Senator Wyden to tune up the bill, make any adjustments we need to make, um, and reintroduce it in 2021 and, and get things going again in Congress. I don't know if, if I'm, I'm going to be able to pull a question out of this, but, you know, given the atmosphere, the, the polarizing nature of, of politics right now, does, and ONDA's always been an organization that used all the toolkits at its disposal, advocacy, uh, partnerships, but also legal action, pu pushing it all the way to the federal level to do what you guys felt was right. And does that legal action or, or those kind of tools into it, does that take a backseat during these times when things are so heated? And that is an avenue that usually kind of takes the temperature up. 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a super interesting question. And I've thought a lot about that because as you know, in my previous work at the Washington council, it was in an environment that, that didn't touch the never used legal action. Um, and the way, the way we view it here at ONDA, and I think is applicable to your question is we play through all three branches of government, the administrative branch, which is things like those resource management plans, legislative plans, and the, and the judicial branch. And that, that legal action um, is not in opposition to the concept of collaboration, but legal action is about setting the boundaries of, we stay within the bounds of the law. And so when BLM, for example, um, during the Trump administration or at any other time makes a decision about the management of the land that violates FLIPMA, you know, or violates NEPA, some of these really fundamental environmental laws, um, our approach is, we're going to bring it up. We're going to talk with them about it. Um, and if they, you know, aren't willing to acknowledge the violation, then we ask the court to acknowledge it. And so really it's not about changing the way that we actually do the work. It's about making sure that the sideboards remain clear and remain strong. And so I know that legal action gets a really bad rap in the sort of the collaborative environmental community, but I, I don't think that it necessarily needs to because the fact that we're engaged in advocacy and legal action doesn't mean that we have to be jerks. Doesn't mean that we can't, you know, respect and, and have respectful disagreements. It just means that we're willing to we're willing to hold the hold those sideboards in place. Um, and I was thinking about you know just even with the recent elections, Mitch McConnell said during a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know, everyone, let's remember that courts are the places where we resolve disputes in the country. And he was talking about the election, but I, you know, that's, that's it. It's about resolving the dispute to have clear sideboards. And then within that space, let's work it out and figure it out. Yeah. I mean, my, my feeling, and I'm editorializing a little bit here is that, you know, when you look at most significant um, legislation or significant change, there's usually legal action there, of course, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, collaboration yeah. will work to a certain point, but I'm always encouraged that, you know, there are organizations like ONDA that have that additional tool and have the resources and wherewithal to use that tool if it becomes necessary. Not that it's one side or the other, but yeah. I know the other side's going to have it. I know the Trump administration certainly sure. going to have an army of lawyers to push removing the sage grouse from endangered species listing, you know? And, exactly. And, yep. and that's why yeah. I think it's good to have organizations like ONDA. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And yeah, you know, and, and we have to be very thoughtful about it. I mean, it's expensive. And so if we're going to take sure. something on, we need to be confident that we're going to prevail. Um, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but over, over time, we've prevailed in something like 75, 80% of our cases. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're going to prevail. Otherwise, quite honestly, we couldn't afford to do it. And so we have to be very thoughtful. We're fortunate to have an attorney that's been with us for about 20 years and, and knows this stuff extremely well. Um, and so, you know, my job is to, is to listen very carefully to him because he knows what he's talking about on where those boundaries are. Ryan, we're reaching the end of the podcast. If, me if members of the community want to get involved with your organization, what's the easiest, safest way to do that? Yeah, the, the safest, easiest way is uh, check out our website, onda.org, onda.org. And um, we have all sorts of events. Um, we have in the, in the, when the weather's good, we have outings and trips. Um, a lot of that stuff, of course, has been adjusted because of COVID, sure. um, but we are continuing to adapt and adjust. And so um, there's a lot of good stuff going on, lectures, um, 
workshops, things like that that people can jump in on. Uh, we're also a membership organization. We have just over 5,000 members. People can join um, as a member um, for any contribution amount that, that feels right to them. Um, and that helps connect them into the fold and become part of that bigger community. At Ryan, at this time, are you guys still doing your um, barbed wire cleanups and, and other things? It, that seems like a completely safe and healthy way to get out during these times. Yeah, we are. Um, and so those are all part of our stewardship program. And we organize trips every year where we gather folks up and we go out and we do meaningful restoration work. And that could include removing fences to improve wildlife migration right. corridors, planting trees along streams, that kind of thing. And that's, and that's the fun stuff for a lot of people because you get out, you often get to see a new place you've never been before. You get to do some meaningful work. You get to meet some like-minded people. Our stewardship team here is a, is a charismatic hilarious, um, smart, thoughtful, funny group of people that are really fun to spend a couple of days with doing that kind of work. Um, and so all those, all those kinds of activities are listed on our website and people can, can check them out. And as we roll into the beginning part of 2021, that's when we'll start announcing all that stuff for the year and okay. we'll talk about what the details are. Very cool. Ryan, anything you want to say to the listeners before we part? You know, I would say, uh, well, first, thank you guys. I appreciate this conversation. You know, we could go on for like two hours and have a good time <laughs> oh, with it. Right, right. <laughs> but um, I guess I, I guess the main thing is I would say step up and get engaged. You know, whether it's the desert you love or some other issue you love, there really are a lot of good opportunities. And there are a lot of organizations like ONDA where it's, it's our job to help connect you to the issues you care about so that your voice can be heard. And that's really important. So so step up, be engaged, and, and, and take part in protecting these places you really care about. That's great. Ryan, thanks for being with us on the Ben Don't Break podcast with co-host Laurel Bronze. We appreciate your time and uh, all the great work you do.